Well, friends, it is a joy to be back in the pulpit again. Um, and let me take a moment of personal privilege. Uh, I know that the season of transition uh, in between the departure of our last senior pastor and the calling of an interim pastor, uh, it's one of the effects that you've had to endure is that you have uh, had very different consistency morning to morning in the Sunday morning pulpit. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you guys uh, for your patience with each of us as pastors, uh, with staff. Um, it's been a joy to be able to share God's word uh, with you. We are also looking forward to the coming of Darwin and Kay and their ministry among us and ask you to be praying for them as they prepare. He'll, uh, Lord willing, be here next week. But uh, I told you last time I preached, I think it was, that uh, we were going to be starting a sermon series in Philippians. And so that's going to be our passage for today. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. It's printed for you, uh, or it's on page 980. It's not printed for you, uh, but the citation's in your bulletin, page 980 on the Pew Bible. And we're going to hear God's word as we turn our attention to this wonderful epistle from Paul. So hear now the word of our Lord, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Friends, this is our God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray and ask his help for it one more time. Oh Lord, who are we to be brought into your presence as our choir just beautifully sang? And what shall we bring, Father, if not simply words of trust and confidence in you? Because there is no offering too great. There is no sacrifice uh, that could fully in our lives ever capture the cost of what it took for you to save us. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come, that you would give us fresh joy in the sacrifice that you've provided to cover for our price of entry. And that the joy that Paul writes about in this epistle would be our joy today, just a little bit more. And that through that joy, by your spirit, we would be transformed to look just a little bit more like Jesus day after day. We ask this all in the name of Jesus and for the sake of your glory. Help us now by your spirit and illuminate our hearts. Amen. 
Well, friends, uh, if I had to ask you, what helps you feel joy? What would you say? How would you describe it? Or what does it feel like to take joy in others? How would you know? Many of us might even have difficulty recognizing how it comes. And that makes us ask, why is it so hard to feel joy sometimes? I was uh, doing some research for this sermon, and I came across a podcast transcript of a, a podcast called How to Build a Happy Life by Arthur Brooks. And uh, he was interviewing a psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb, and they were spending time unwinding the question of how do you have joy in your life? And they said one of the marks of our adult lives in particular, sorry children, this is what you have to look forward to, is that you have to readjust your relationship of how you know and experience joy. We find ourselves often, more, more often than not, harassed by the fact that our busy adult lives, and this is now even drifting down into teenage lives, leave us more joyless than anything. Even if we find ourselves oftentimes at the pinnacle of success, our success can seem meaningless and empty sometimes and robbed of the joy that we've spent our lives working to get there. And there's one point in this interview where the psychotherapist, Dr. Gottlieb, makes this comment about why it's so hard for us to feel joy. And she says, one reason we struggle so much with even recognizing joy is because we live today in a culture of ambition and moving forward. You know, a world full of all sorts of pressure. So that now we think ideas like joy and fun are frivolous because of how we have more serious things to attend to. But that doesn't leave us any less achy for a desire for joy, does it? And this sense of ambition that we all sort of, it's the, it's the Kool-Aid that we swim in in our culture. It's something that can affect our relationship, not just with joy itself, but with others. Because if I'm going to only get what I want when I've achieved the aim of my ambition, anyone who doesn't help me meet that goal of my own joy, though it's fleeting when I get there, they're just an obstacle to stand in the way. Uh, that can lead to a society, as we currently know it, to be a very fractured and competitive place where we seek to gain joy through the wrong meanings, ultimately trying to lift ourselves over other people by the accumulation of all of our accolades. But life in the church is meant to be different. And that desire for status is something that the people at Philippi would have known deeply. I mean, Philippi was a place that lived for a similar sort of status through ambition. And the church there was facing some of the same challenges that come from living as disunified people and the competitive interaction and back and forth between its members. It was a Roman colony that had a historic significance to the empire, adopted as a colony in AD 42, and that basically meant you had status as one of the most important people in the world simply by nature of the fact that you took residence or had an identity as a Roman. Roman, Roman soldiers uh, thought it was such a beautiful city. It was on the Via Ignatia. It was a trade route that Rome made throughout its empire that they would retire there. It was a jewel to the crown or to the emperor of Rome. And it was a place that was very loyal to it. So it was a place that was hard for Christians who often had no status to make a living and a life. 
especially if you were living for the gospel. But Paul is writing this letter to Philippi to encourage them. And he's not particularly talking about how hard it is to be a Christian in this world. I mean, he touches on that. But he's oftentimes discussing joy. It's a word that he uses in 15 different times throughout this epistle. And the word for joy in this epistle that he uses, this letter, it's, it's one that uh, it, over its half, half of its uses come in the letter to Philippians. So the book of Philippians is a book that's about joy in God and joy in others. And how we learn to serve one another in the midst of that joy. And here in the introduction, Paul is, is, is writing to them and he's telling them what I hope to see is this. He's telling them that it's only as we live joyfully out of our gospel status <clears throat> that we're transformed to be gospel partners who live for a kingdom purpose. It's only as we live joyfully out of our gospel status that we become gospel partners transformed to be gospel partners who live for his kingdom purpose. And as he goes through this letter, he's going to be dealing with what it takes to live in joyful harmony with each other in the midst of a culture that, that left them competitively seeking to lift themselves over one another. And he's going to show it in this greeting, uh, how they can have joy in the midst of this gospel status they've been given in three separate ways. There's going to be three headings that we look at this passage in. There's going to be joy in their gospel status, joy at their purposeful partnership, and joy at God's transforming work. Three aspects of joy that Paul's unpacking. Joy at their gospel status, joy in their partnership, and joy at God's work. And just a little bit more background on Paul's relationship with the Philippians. I mean, you teachers in the room know the joy that you experience from a student who just gets what you're trying to teach. It's an elated feeling that you have. My wife homeschools our kids. It's amazing to watch her light up when one of our kids gets some sort of difficult truth that she's trying to enlighten them on. And for Paul, he had this beautiful relationship with them. It was, it was, it was a place that, if you go back to Acts 16, Acts 16 was where the church at Philippi was founded. And at the church at Philippi, it comes after Paul is given, he's about to go east, or sorry, for y'all's perspective, it's east into Asia on his second missionary journey when he has this vision of a Macedonian man, that's a Greek man, calling him over to go west instead of east to establish the church. And so Paul basically jumps up on the Ignatian way and his first stop where he goes after he fulfills this sense of missionary calling is Philippi. He meets Lydia, the seller of purple goods, and she's instantly converted on a Sabbath afternoon. And then there's a, a demon that he casts out of a young girl, and he's sort of introduced very quickly into suffering in this city. Because as he casts this demon out of this young girl, the, the people who were using her in her, in her trade of, of being able to predict the future because of the spiritual forces at work in her, they riot and they basically say... We don't like that you just cast this girl out. You're, you're imposing all these false gods on us. So they take him before the judges. They beat him. He's thrown into prison for doing a good work. And then in prison, the Philippian jailer, it's the story of literally the, the foundations of the prisons shake as God delivers Paul and Silas 
uh, when they're in the jail at Philippi. And the jailer's about to kill himself, but he's converted too uh, because Paul and Silas are like, no, we're here. Don't, don't kill yourself. And we actually are here to proclaim good news to you. And a church is established because they go back to Lydia's house and uh, they, are, they are establishing a house church that begins this joyful fellowship. And this, this church develops this partnership that supports Paul throughout his ministry financially and prayerfully wherever he goes. And now it's 10 years later and Paul again finds himself in prison. A Roman prison was where you went to await judicial sentencing, usually some sort of torture, enslavement, or death. And that's the circumstances he's coming from as he's writing a letter to check in to his audience in Philippi. And most letters opened in the ancient world with a similar just, hey, this is who, I'm, who I am, this is who I'm writing to, and cheers, I'm really happy to write to you. But Paul takes that form and he unleashes the Christian truth that he's writing to his audience about all over that typical form in these first 11 verses. And he's going to bring out that theme of joy in their identity as he comes to greet them in the letter. He, he opens the letter by calling the people saints, and he's taking joy in their gospel status as he does so. That word for saints is a word that we typically associate someone's moral behavior with. Oh, that's a very saintly person. Or that's a group of people who have arrived because of how holy they look, right? But it comes from the word in Hebrew that means set apart or set apart for a particular purpose and distinct. It's contrasted in scripture with the ideas of being common, profane, impure, or defiled. It's, it's the opposite of those things. Eugene Peterson says that it, though it's easy to think about this because of their moral behavior, this, this word saints, it's actually a word that God uses to show how they've been set apart by God for a kind of life which they've been chosen for in God. It was his choice that actually made them holy and placed them in the place that they were. In other words, their saint status was driven by the fact that God had chosen them. God intended to bless them for a particular purpose and Paul's greeting them in that knowledge by simply calling them saints because they're saints who have been chosen in Christ, as he says, the saints in Christ Jesus. The source of where their morality, their, their purity, their set-apartness comes from is not anything that they've done, but someone in whom they've been chosen and associated with. That phrase in Christ is a phrase that Paul uses over a hundred times in his letter. And um, there's, there's other teaching in scripture where Paul talks about being in Adam or in Christ. And what he's saying is for us to understand what benefit being in Christ is, you have to know Paul saw Adam as a representative for people appointed by God whose life and behavior held repercussions for all mankind. Jesus, Paul saw as a second Adam whose life and behavior held repercussions for us. He came to do all that Adam failed to do and to undo all that Adam did through his fall. Christ died, paid the penalty for sin and death and rose from the dead so that those who trust in him begin to share in the blessings of all that he did. He says that they are saints in Christ. 
Not only are they chosen in him and made holy in him, Paul's going to show how their status in Christ is actually the source that their holiness comes from, which we'll look at in just a moment. But before he gets there, he says, he he reinforces what it means to be saints in Christ when he says they have received grace and peace from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's honor and favor. It means that God came to us in free, unprovoked love to give us the opposite of what we deserve. And peace is the flourishing and well-being that comes because of their relationship with God. He's saying, you are people who are set apart by God in the place that you are because of his choice of you, not because of anything you've done, and you received everything that you could have ever needed. But what's interesting is that Paul's able to say this about them, even though it's a church that is kind of marked by various scandal. If you flip over to chapter 4, one of the scandals is that there's open conflict in their midst. Chapter 4, verse 2 says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He's even appointed a mediator, a true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together whose names are in the book of life. There's a little bit of conflict there. If you look at chapter three, he's writing about the righteousness that comes through faith because they're in danger of forgetting it from some false teachers that had arisen arisen among them. He says, look out for those dogs, look out for the evildoers who who, uh, mutilate the flesh. And he's going to go on from there to talk about what actually is the gospel that they've been saved by. As he talks about, it's a gospel of being saved by grace through faith. And he's writing them, reminding them of their status as saints, even though there's these various challenges. They can't, if you go to chapter 2, it says, if there's any encouragement from Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, be of the same mind. They're not unified in the same mind. That disunity was something that was prevailing in their midst. They're about to face imprisonment. There's all sorts of challenges that they're facing. And yet he says, you are saints in Jesus Christ. Alec Motier says in his commentary on Philippians that By wishing these blessings on the Christians at Philippi, Paul is assuring them of God's unchanged attitude. The God who planned and accomplished that salvation is the same God who, by his unchanged grace, gives people everything they need. The God who's always, who first took the initiative, is always taking the initiative to act on behalf of his people and keep them in possession of these blessings that Paul's writing to them and greeting them in. And that word for greet is rejoice. He's rejoicing with them that this is who God's made them to be, even though there's a lot of conflict and disunity in their midst. And if you were to look at that list of the Philippian church's behavior, how would you see a church like Philippi Would you call them the holy ones with the problems that they're facing? Would you say they were saints or would you say they weren't very saintly? 
What you would call them depends on what definition of saintliness you're operating out of. And this is where the letter begins to hit our lives as a church today. You see, if we operate out of a definition of saints that emphasizes the degree to which you're known by what you do for God, your Mother Teresa-ness, if you will, then you won't have a high amount of tolerance for people in the church, will you? Because God's people are not just saints, they're sinners. And the church is a hospital for sinners who grow in godliness in our need for grace moment by moment in the Christian life. But we grow in the confidence that God has provided what we need as saints, not because of anything that we've done, but because God has set his unrevocable love on us in Jesus Christ. And thinking about the church and God's people and ourselves in this way, it's almost like thinking about the church as a communion of saints versus thinking them as a collection of heroes and villains. Lauren Winter writes in her book, Still Notes on a Mid-Faith Crisis. She says that the stories you tell of your communities are stories that uh, matter significantly. Stories told with heroes at the center of them are told to loud the virtues of the heroes, for if the hero failed, all would be lost. By contrast, stories told with saints at the center of them, saints can fail in a way that heroes can't. Because the failure of the saint reveals the forgiveness and new possibilities made in God. That saint is actually just a small character in a story fundamentally about God. And it turns out that the story that the Bible tells of Christians is that it's a good story in which we learn to fail. Because that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Though you are saints set apart in Christ, given everything you need, you and I will fail one another. In other words, what Paul is saying is being a saint is more a story of who you are vitally connected to rather than your own vital abilities. And so what are the signs that you may be struggling with thinking of the church or this church or anyone in that paradigm of saints versus heroes? Well, you feel you have a tolerance for certain types of people without problems versus lots of intolerance for people with problems. You could be highly disillusioned when people fail to meet your expectations of them or even cynically waiting for them to fail you. You might think the problems facing a particular church are a certain group of people rather than the problems that you share in common with others because of our collectively sinful hearts. You might think the church is a place to be protected from certain types of people or the culture versus a place where we all sit every Sunday morning under our deep need for grace because this is the hospital in which we come for treatment. You may live in isolation and fear of being known truly by others within the church. 
Or, as Lori Gottlieb, the psychotherapist I referenced earlier, says, you may treat the church as one more pressured, joyless place for ambitious performance to gain a status rather than to rest in grace. Friends, how do you think of your relationship to the church? How do you think of this church? You see, the Christian message is one that offers the ability to rest and rejoice in a status you've been given by the one who has arrived rather than striving to become the type of people who belong and have arrived on our own gifts. We're not trying to outperform one another to prove we belong. We are resting in the joyful status God has given us as his people. But the gospel doesn't just give them a status, a joyful status. The gospel has transformed them to be purposeful partners. And Paul is thanking them for this. Paul is writing the Philippian church because what they did was they, out of their poverty, out of their uh, incredible not having of much, they gave a sacrificial gift to Paul who was in prison because unless you received a gift from the outside in prison, you probably wouldn't survive very quickly in the ancient world. And Paul is thanking them for that. He thanks them for that partnership in verse 5. Uh, it's the same word that we translate as fellowship in the New Testament, but this isn't just sitting around a table and eating because Paul couldn't do that. It's a business partnership in the broader meaning of, uh, of, of the New Testament, a, a relationship where you are meeting obligations because you have commonly shared interests. That's what Paul's thanking them for. They gave an incredibly sacrificial gift. They suffered with him in his, in his imprisonment. In verse 7, it says, uh, you are partners with me in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are people who have not just financially invested, but there's a reality that these people will face persecution themselves. And Paul is overjoyed that they are partners. They were willing to live lives defending and confirming the gospel with Paul through his ministry. But they were willing to take a stand for the gospel themselves. And it's easy to think that Paul is simply being grateful because his pockets have been padded and he's got a little bit more to eat. But Paul's saying, no, like, you are partners who get it. Like, you were not just that church 10 years ago who had a couple of converts. Like, you are actually getting that what God wants of us as saints is all of our lives. And you are giving of your life that the gospel might go forward. And he's overjoyed at that. And that, that breeds a sort of like hesitation for us, doesn't it? Because the age-old question of the Christian life, the age-old question of the Christian life is what's the relationship between the Christian's work and God's work on their behalf? And Paul says some pretty impressive things about their partnership in the gospel. He says, this is the certainty of proof that God is at work in you. And is he saying that because of their generosity and sacrificial life, that that was the proof that God would work in them? 
Yes and no. He's saying it's the fruit, not the grounds. It's the fruit of God's work in their life. You see, what happens when we become Christians is two things happen to us. Not only are we given a joyful status in which we can rest as gospel gospel marked children of God who is our father and Christ is our older brother and he lives inside of us by his Holy Spirit applying all the benefits of his salvation to us. That's part of what happens when you become a Christian. But the other thing that happens to you is you get the mindset of what Paul and Timothy had in the very first verse of this letter. Paul says, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. That word is slaves. It's not slaves in the form of chattel slavery, like what is a stain on our nation's conscience, but slavery in the, in the definition that it happened in the ancient world. To be a slave was to be someone who belonged to another who was his master, head, and Lord. As Christians, we come to realize that not only are we saved and set apart by God, because of his love. We are saved to serve him because of the fruit of his love in our lives. And there is nothing that we will not keep to ourselves as we joyfully lower ourselves and become gospel partners in his kingdom work. That's what Paul understood. And it's actually interesting because in this letter, this is the only letter in the New Testament where Paul doesn't insist on his status as an apostle. To a church that was struggling with him, taking ambition over one another, Paul sets the example for them. And he says, we're slaves to Jesus Christ. Even though he set us apart to be the preachers of this community. Because Paul is saying there is no one in this community that is not marked by the mindset that our master is Jesus and he demands everything from us. But not like a ruthless king, like a father who delights to see his child come and bear his likeness in us. Because that's what God wants from us. He wants to transform us into the image of Jesus himself. And so it makes me wonder, friends, do you see the church as the place where you serve as a slave? Or is it just another place of joyless service? Do you serve in the context of our community? Trying to keep people at arm's length so that you're not given another responsibility? Or do you serve in the joy of what Christ has done for you? Knowing that he has given you this community to live in so that you might learn to express all the gifts that he has given to his church. And he actually wants to use you to meet the needs of this congregation. When we understand what the gospel has done for us in this way, we can't help but be people who are marked as loving servants for a kingdom purpose. But it's because there's a real source of their transformed lives. And that's the third thing Paul wants them to see. The gospel's influence of their lives was in verse 7 that he said it was right for them to feel how he did about them 
because they had become partakers with him of grace. They are people in whom God is at work. Their partnership evidences that the source of the very life head of God is at work in their midst. He goes to further underline the source of God's work in their midst by saying in verse 6, one of the beautiful life verses that should define how we think about our Christian lives. He says, I'm sure of this, because you've become partakers of grace, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's two verbs in that passage. The one begins with he who began a good work. The Greek word there is the same word we used to describe an inauguration. The idea that it's a totally active idea from God. The tense of that verb is decisive and deliberate and passive on the part of its recipients. But will also, he'll be the one to carry it to completion. The Greek word here is one that is intensive and expresses the idea that God will absolutely and evermore put his finishing touches upon the work that he started in the lives of his children so that you'll be lacking in nothing. He shows how intentional God is by naming the day for which we're appointed, the day of Christ Jesus. That's the day when Jesus will come. It's fixed in the Father's diary. It's as if there were a contract between the Father and the Son that the day will come and be ready and our transformation can no more be forfeited than God break his pledged word to glorify Jesus on that day. That's how certain Paul is in the status that they've received. That their transformed lives show an eternal divine source in the triune God who is carrying them by their works to the day of completion when he will reveal his people as the bride of his son. But there's something even deeper there. Because the way that Paul uses the idea of being carried to the day until that day, he links that future with our present transformation. Almost as if the very seedbed of that day and our hope in its coming is related to the fact that we are being changed. What I'm saying is Paul's looking at the very foretaste of that day as the fact that God has set his people apart and they are gladly serving him. Your sanctification is sure because God intends to glorify his son. God who loves us as we are before we come to him loves us too much to let us stay that way. And he's going to transform us to prepare us for being a bride worthy of his son. But our growth in being like him shows up as it will on that day now in our lives of godliness. In other words, the risen, ascended Jesus, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, has proven himself worthy, guarantees that the foretaste of his reign comes through the lives of his people who partner with him in their sanctification to work for his purposes. And this is why he prays for him in the way that he does in verses 9 to 11. 
Because the work that Jesus intends in us, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more. With all knowledge and discernment. You know, as Presbyterians, we, we wish, I think, there's this tendency in me, I don't know about you, we wish that Paul actually said, I pray that your knowledge would abound. Because we're really good at emphasizing the things we should know without equally emphasizing the way that we should love one another. And becoming a more loving person is actually the goal that God has set for you and I. Because it's not something that can be done apart from the God who's at work in you. And to become a more loving person means that you actually need the church. You cannot become more loving apart from being in relationships with other people. And that is why the church exists. So that even as you bump up against one another constantly, instead of it being this fruitless, conflictual interaction, what's actually happening is the seeds of glorious salvation are being sown in your life by a God who will use even things like your disunity, things like our confusion over our works to actually change us through our relationships with one another to make us a little bit more like Jesus. You know, in our day and age, we look at the church and its people more often as a place to be tolerated rather than an instrument for our transformation. Perhaps you're familiar with the quote from Gandhi that says, I love your Jesus, it's your Christians I can't stand. Maybe far, of us, far too many of us in the church have reached a point where we're more comfortable with Gandhi's sentiment than we are with Jesus' sentiment. But this is why we need the church and its people so much. Because it's where you're truly transformed through God's gracious intention to bear out the family likeness. It transforms the church so drastically in our lives to be a place where we can actually rest as we work, joyfully serving him, even if it's difficult to be around one another. Because when you understand the riches of the gospel given, you understand there's nothing that God will not do to use a sinful, wayward people to make you more like himself. And the best place for you to actually learn that is in the context of a group of people who need to be shaped and transformed, like the church. That changes the church from being a joyless community that's trying to outperform one another so that they can feel like they belong to being a people who joyfully marvel at the unpayable debt that we owe to our Savior. That he can require nothing of us that is not too much even if it means we have to love difficult people like us. Because the fact is, is that the only reason we were ever made to belong is that he loved us in our difficult place. So that our love for one another becomes a way that we're changed to joyfully become like our Savior. 
Friends, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones asked the question after thinking about a passage like this. He says, friends, the question is, how joyful are you? What if someone approached you out of the blue and told you they had recently paid one of your bills, but they didn't tell you which one, he says. Well, they might have paid your dry cleaning bill this month, but then again, they might have paid the balance that you owe on your automobile. The point is that it is the size of the debt which determines the amount of the joy that you have upon discovering it's been paid for you. And could it be that the reason why so many Christians struggle to have joy in the Lord or in one another is for two reasons. Either they are not aware of how large the debt they owed has been paid, like the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18. Or they're not aware of the depth of God's radical provision in Christ for our sins. Friends, even though these Philippian believers were struggling to apply it, one thing that Paul is grateful for them about is that they got that the debt had been paid. And they could take joy in that debt so that their lives would be transformed to be partners in advancing his kingdom, no matter what he required of them. Are you joyful in this way? I'm not saying that this is the constant state of a Christian's life, that you'll never have sorrow. But what Paul's showing is a soul, uh, uh, it, it's a soul enriching joy that takes you through your darkest valleys of your deepest moments into deep relationships with others in the context of the church. So that it becomes the place where you rejoice in what's been done for you together rather than one more place that's marked by the ambition of trying to elevate ourselves over one another. These Philippian believers had gotten it. And it's only when we stare deeply at that gospel status Paul outlines that we can get it too. Let us pray and ask God's help as we seek to do that. Father, we are a community that needs your help. Lord, we are a community that needs to be refreshed in our joy as the engine of our Christian lives. Father, we need your help to become those people marked by a transforming love as we partner together in the gospel. And so, Lord, we ask that as we come from here today, that you would strengthen us in the bond of our fellowship so that we might be able to truly be reminded of our joy and give all that your grace demands as gratitude in the loving partnership that you have set out for us here at First Pres and beyond. Let us be people who live for your kingdom as only you can make it so, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.